Okay, let me put it on Facebook. Log Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. MJ after my sister, Marsha Joyce. And I'm, we're speaking from rainy Westchester. It's pouring here. But this is going to be really cool. When a mysterious walk-in to the U.S. Embassy in Vienna claims to have critical information about a Russian intelligence operation, he raises eyebrows. But when he asks for Matt Drake, who I love, by name and calls him the Irishman, he gets the DIA's premier case officer on a one-way flight. Hmm. And John Bentley, the author, is here of Hostile Intent. And we're going to talk about it. Good morning and welcome to MJ Network. This is so cool. Good morning, Fran. Thank you so much for having me the day before Hostile Intent comes out. So I'm super excited. Me too, because you get your five stars tomorrow as soon as I read awesome. it all. My my my, uh, my Grammarly and my uh, word, pre- word check, I know, spell check, for some stupid reason, I correct everything and then uncorrects it afterwards. So I'm going to make <laughs> sure that – yeah, I, I reposted the thing twice because I said, well, where did that come from? I, I will fix That's it before funny. I post my nine stars on Amazon tomorrow. So, and I haven't been giving five stars recently, people. So, haha. This starts <laughs> off with tension. I love Matt. Yeah. From the beginning, Matt is dragged away from his time with his wife. I felt so bad for her. So, why does he agree <laughs> to go and why? And what's the mission? I mean, the poor guy couldn't even say no. We didn't even have time to to have any fun with his poor wife. Poor thing. <laughs> Yeah, if he said no, there wouldn't be much of a book afterwards, I guess, huh? So that's the that's the the kind of you know when you write these um, books, there are there are parts of it that you try and make um, as realistic as part as possible, and then there are parts of it that you have to, as the audience, the audience agrees to suspend their disbelief, I guess. And so you know, part of kind of the the thing I think the audience looks forward to in this genre is always seeing kind of the reluctant hero, or in this case, my protagonist is a, is a guy named Matt mm-hmm. Drake, who is a, a case officer for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And usually every book he is, he is trying to spend time with his wife or do something else uh, when the yeah. world calls and drags him back in. So that's what you see with this is that he's where the book starts. He has, it's kind of um, each of my books are standalones. Hostile Intent is a standalone, but I also mm. think of this book as kind of the end of a of a three book trilogy that wrap up some questions. And so the Irishman that that kicks off this book, Nolan Burke, is somebody that Matt met um, yeah. in the last book, in The Outside Man. And so you get to see that in Hostile Intent. I couldn't put down Outside Man either. I read oh, that well, too. thank you. Thank you so much. You know, it's, it's just that, you know, sometimes your books are different. I'm not just saying that 
It's just that it's not the same character, just a different plot. Sure. And that's what I sure. that drives me crazy. Yeah, that drives me crazy. It's like I know I just read one yeah. and it was okay and I'm going like, You gotta be kidding. There was no way the normal person would <laughs> do that at the end of the no one could. It's like you yeah. interesting. So why does he well, only one Yeah. No, I was gonna say I appreciate you saying that. One of um so there are a lot of fantastic writers in the genre right now and when I debuted with Without Sanction, I guess, two years ago now, my first book in the Matt Drake series. My my editor said that to do to, to succeed in this genre, you have to do something that's the same but different. And what he meant was uh-huh. that your book was the same in that it belonged on the shelf next to, you know, Mark Graney or Brad Taylor or, or Vince Flynn, but different in that, you know, Brad Taylor already writes a fantastic Brad Taylor book. I, I can't be – you know, an imitation of him, I have to do things a little bit different. And so for me, what that turned into were, was a couple things. So one, I made Matt um, an, a, an employee of the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is an agency that has the very same mission set to the CIA, um, but but um, competes with the CIA for kind of turf and funding and, and missions and things like that. And so there's a lot of cool conflict that's just built in by bringing that agency into my book instead of another. And the second one being Matt himself. He's he's very much kind of a witty first-person protagonist in the vein of um, Nelson DeMille's John Corey character. And so I did mm-hmm. those two things to try and make Matt different and then make my book's a little different, so I really appreciate you saying that that resonates with you. It does, because lately I've been resonating wanting to put some of the books back. Oh, and by the <laughs> way, Mark Greeny, your, your, your publicist is printing out a copy of Armored for me, too. They mm, bound copies. Well, I haven't seen the, the book version, but I listened to the Audible version, and it was fantastic. Mark's just a great writer. Well, I, I can't – the book is in front of me, and I can't destroy it and write in it and circle and underline. That, that's how I write my reviews. Yeah, I, I can't do it. It's my mother's fault. When you're told to read 10 books a week and all your homework and underline and take notes, what can I, I, by the time I got done with your book, I could tell you from page one to the last page what it was about. It's scary. So why does he only want mad and what goes wrong? And then yeah. I got really upset because the Russians got my mat and my Nolan. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah, so, the, so um, at the end of uh, The Outside Man, there's kind of a, a critical exchange between um, Matt and, and Nolan, who is the mm. Irishman. And I'm not, not going to go into what it is because I don't want to no. spoil that book, but suffice to say that Matt owes Nolan a favor. And so when – when he gets um, – Matt gets this call that says, hey, there's a walk-in, and a walk-in is kind of intelligent slang for somebody who just comes into an embassy somewhere and says, I have information for you. And, and walk-ins generally are, are viewed with a great amount of suspicion because it could be somebody legitimate who all of a sudden wants to, to help the United States or spy for the United States, but it's also just as likely to be – um, a, a misinformation campaign, if you will, or a false flag where they're sent in um, by a foreign intelligence service, to, you know, specifically to throw, um, to throw you off track and to feed in mm. bad information. And so Matt kind of, kind of views this walk-in with suspicion until he finds out it's Nolan and, and Nolan says, Hey, 
I'm calling in the favor you owe me. And so, you know, Matt is one of the things that drives him is this sense of honor. Before he was a case officer for the DIA, he was a commander in the Ranger Regiment. And so he very much is driven by the sense of honor and kind of a creed. And so he agrees to go over and and meet with Nolan, and he does so briefly, but before he can get past, you know, really just a how are you doing and good to see you, Nolan gets kidnapped by a, a Russian direct action team that's operating there in Vienna, and so then the book kind of takes off from there. That's where it took off. I was very worried about Matt. <laughs> I know, you know, the, the one, you see, I I read Philip Mogolin, I interviewed him in March, and he has this thing that whenever he writes a book, I'm the first interview, forever. Oh, nice, nice. And and he killed, nice. Off a main, he killed off a main character, <laughs> and I was very upset. Yeah, he killed off somebody really good. And it took me, like, until read, after I read the fourth chapter, I go, wait a minute. I had box of tissues. I was so upset. He explained why. I said, no excuses. Sorry. So who did it's he turn to? It's funny you say to? that. Cause I, yeah. no, you I can't kill say, a funny you say that. No, no. But the um, yesterday we had our, our launch for Hostile Intent, and Brad Taylor was kind enough to, to moderate it. And he killed off a couple books ago a, a character called Decoy. And he still uh-huh. gets um, hate mail from fans over it. And they're like, why did you kill him off? Why did you kill off Decoy? So as a writer, you have to be very, very careful of who you, you kill off for a number of reasons, I guess. He killed the protagonist's boyfriend. That made me very sad. Because he was a major cat. But, you know, Brad Taylor doesn't send me his book, so I can't help him out here. I, I've been known to take really negative reviews and twist them in another direction. Mm. I don't write negative no. reviews. And if I have a book like I did recently that was really bad, I just like, I pass on that one. Uh-uh. I won't yeah. pen somebody's yeah. work because if I hate it, someone else might like it. Usually I, if I hate it, everybody yeah. else does too. So <laughs> who, does, who does he turn to for help? And what does he ask, and what does the person ask him to do? And then when he, what did yeah, he realize so, what happened to what to poor Nolan? Oh, poor Nolan. <laughs> yeah. So so what's what's interesting about it, like I said, is I wanted to I wanted to answer. So um, with without sanction and the outside man, the first two books in the yeah. series, there were a number of kind of questions that were hanging out there that hadn't been answered yet. And then there were also some people you met in both of those books that I wanted to bring back into hostile intent. And so. Um, one of the folks that Matt met in The Outside Man is a guy named Benny, who is a uh, mm-hmm. a uh, executive or a um, a spy for the Mossad, an Israeli spy. And so, what you see, what what I, what I so the beginning or the first half of the book, I guess, is set in Vienna. And I was um, mm-hmm. when I was stationed in Germany, it was my last assignment in the in the army. I got to spend some time in Vienna, run a marathon there, and it's a beautiful historic city but what i didn't realize at the time was it also has a reputation in addition of of being the city of music for being Mm. the city of spies and there's Mm. kind of this folklore that says on any given day there are seven thousand different spies flying their craft on the streets of vienna and so when i read that i thought you know what would be neat in this book is to see how many different spies i can pull in at one time 
and have them all centered around Vienna for some reason. And so one of the, the people that Matt meets in Vienna after Nolan's kidnapped by the Russians is Benny, and Benny agrees to help Matt on the condition that Matt partners with um, one of Benny's Mossad operatives, a, a girl named Ella. And so it was mm-hmm. really fun. I've been um, lucky enough in my, in my day job, in my real job when I wasn't a writer, to work for a number of Israeli companies, and several of my mm. close friends are Israelis, but culturally um, they operate a, a lot differently um, than Westerners from the standpoint of um, when I was working from home and I'd be on conference calls with my Israeli friends, my wife would come mm. in afterwards and say, is, that, is everything all right? I heard a lot of yelling. And I'm like, no, that's just, that's just how they talk. That's just how – and so mm-hmm. I really wanted to bring a lot of that to this book, and so you can see – kind of that between Matt and Ella's interactions and, and how um, they have to figure out how to get along together because neither one is happy being partnered with the other. And it was just a ton of fun to do. And, and you get to see Matt doing some case officer stuff, running and recruiting assets. It's something that's called a poster board session in Vienna. Mm-hmm. And, that was and interesting. Ella gets to take part of that. So it was a super, super fun sequence to write, and she was a really fun character to bring into the series. Well, what I'm really glad you didn't do was have him cheat on his wife with her. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? Uh, All kidding aside, that was another um, difference that I wanted to do with my series. I'm glad you didn't do that. Thank you. Many of the protagonists in in this genre are single folks or, you know, folks who – who whatever are more of the of the James Bond kind of mold, and I, and I wanted to do something different. You know, most of the most of the people when when um, without sanction, my first book came out. One of the radio interviews interviewers asked me at the time, "Are you Matt Drake?" And I said, "You know, I am absolutely not Matt Drake, but I stood <laughs> in the same room with him, and that's true." And the people who I yeah. know could have been Matt Drake, most of them have marriages that act as kind of an anchor to them, an anchor back to a saner world or back to reality or back to an existence that's different from their day job that allows them to maintain balance. And so I really wanted to show that side of a protagonist. And so Matt is married um, to a woman named Lila, who is the descendant of um, Afghan and Pakistani parents. And and that really plays into um, something, a dynamic that goes on in the first book and without sanction in that when Matt looks at his wife, he's reminded of a woman who was killed in Syria. And so he has Mm -hmm. some pretty horrific um, PTSD stuff that he's trying to do. And so I wanted to carry that forward, and I wanted Matt to be somebody who's different and somebody who's madly in love with his wife and somebody who doesn't. Um, pursue other women and cheat on his wife. And so I appreciate you saying that. That was that was very much um, an intentional choice on my part. I'm getting good at this. <laughs> Look, not only that, the fact that she was Pakistanian in Afghanistan was really great because I, I'm I meeting I meet a lot of people somehow, and people are so rude to people that come from those from Pakistan or whatever. Sure. They automatically prejudge. Sure. My my the girl that gets me my frames, my glasses is from Pakistan. She's my cool friend. I love her. Mm-hmm. And we we mm-hmm. talk about just about everything because I get bored with glasses and I keep telling her I need more. So <laughs> so yeah, the I, other character. I had a really good. I was gonna say I had a really good friend here um, who is Pakistani and she. 
And she, uh, for a long time, she cut my hair. And so I would use that time to talk to her about her experience coming here. She's a Pakistani immigrant. And she raised her boys as Americans who, you know, happened to have Pakistani parents and, and were proud Muslims. And so, you know, they observed Ramadan, but when Christmas came, she would give Christmas gifts to all her neighbors and stuff. And so it, it was like through her, I got, to, I got to view the world a little bit through her eyes and then see this example of somebody who could still be very, very proud of their heritage and very and still be a proud Muslim and, and cling to those beliefs, but still be acclimated and American and see, like, how do those – because a lot of times people think, you know, are those two things exclusive? You know, can you be an immigrant who's proud of their heritage and still be an American? Mm-hmm. Can you be – frankly, a lot of people wonder, can you be Muslim and still be an American? And you absolutely can be. And when I was an FBI agent, we would not have been able to do – uh, much of the work we were we were able to do without um, the assistance of people who were immigrants, who people who were you know different nationalities and different faiths, and so I really wanted to you know my relationship with her changed me quite a bit and impacted me, and I wanted to be able to reflect some of that in my books. You did. My grandfather came from uh, Poland. My grandmother. She was a victim of the concentration camps. My grandfather had to be oh, smart. He went, he went to the Polish underground to get her and her sisters here, and uh, wow. which, which was which was which was totally amazing. And he sold apples mm-hmm. on a street corner in order to make a living for his family. That's and you know, there was so much. There was so much I didn't know about him. And he even went golden my year. He went to Israel. He met her. Because the people oh, that you wow. hear from the rabbis and stuff were, he was a big, big, important mm-hmm. man, my grandfather. I never realized it. I knew it, but when he died, there were 500 rabbis there. I would go like, wait a minute. Wow. He, he was, That's yeah, incredible. So he, he got to meet her, got to talk about politics, and then go like, I wish I would have gone with you. That would have been really <laughs> cool. So who's my it other favorite? The, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Who is Fredo? Yeah, I was going to say my... my um, my um, first Clancy book, Target Acquired, is set in Tel Aviv, and it's, that is one of my favorite cities in the world. I've been for, fortunate enough to travel to Israel mm-hmm. a number of times, and like I said, have a lot of Israeli people. And I, I tell folks all the time, you know, like, where should I go? Because I was, I was fortunate enough when I was in the Army to live overseas a number of times and said, you need to go to Israel. Like, everybody needs to go to Israel. The people are friendly. They speak great English. You know, the sense of history is there. The food is incredible. It really is one of my favorite places in the world. I wish I could. My cousin was my pen pal when I was younger, once I went. And she was in the Israeli army uh, during several years. Oh, wow. She married her commander in Rochester, and I lost track of her. We have the same name in, in um, Hebrew. And um, mm. she would write me. I would write her. I think only once my grandfather called Israel, so I got to talk to her for five minutes. Huh. And it's 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 said she was my best pal. I have her picture on my uh, on my counter inside. But yeah, oh, so wow. who are my other my other favorite character is Fredo. I love this guy. Yeah, yeah. So what does so he owe him? Frodo. And when he, uh, I love him. Well, why does he so? He's amazing. Well, thank you. So one of the one of the um, incredible things about the military and that the military does so well is that you serve with people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of walks of life, all kinds of 
um, political beliefs. Like it really is the first time I ever um, worked for an African-American was in the military. The first time my Mm. wife knows how to make um, Puerto Rican beans and rice because one of my best friends was Puerto Rican. And when we, when Mm. my wife and I moved to a new duty station, he and his wife let us live with them for two months. And, and you, and it's just this amazing um, melting pot of cultures and beliefs and people mm-hmm. that, especially when you go to combat with somebody, that ends up becoming forging into a brotherhood, if you will, that it, that supersedes all of those other things. And so I, I really wanted to be able to show that because that nobility is something um, that if you're not in, in the military, you don't often see and you don't often get to experience. And so... The way I show it is the – I say there's there's two things that kind of drive my books and drive hostile intent and maybe make them a little different, and it's humor and heart. And the heart part is both um, Matt's relationship with his wife, who he absolutely loves, and Matt's relationship with his best friend Frodo, who he absolutely loves as a brother. And mm-hmm. so Frodo is an African-American man who was part of um, what's known as – Delta Force, or if you serve in it, what's called the unit. And so he and Matt were paired together very early on in Matt's career as a DIA officer. And so they had to kind of figure out how to get along together and how to work together. And then in Without Sanction, the debut, you see um, Frodo and, and Matt in Syria when everything goes wrong and, and they hit an IED and Frodo is, is catastrophically injured. It ends up amputating uh, one of his arms and, and, mm. and destroying one of his legs. And so a guy who was the military equivalent of a professional football play, player, you know, the very top, um, very top of, of the, the pyramid is now reduced to being a cripple, and Matt felt responsible for it. And so, you know, three books later, you still see um, the dynamic between Matt and Frodo, two people who are now closer than brothers because they deployed in combat together, but Frodo is no longer um, the operator he once was, and so he has to try and figure out how, how to navigate that, and Matt has to figure out how to accept what happened without it, without it, without it defining him, without, without Matt for the rest of his life thinking, I'm the one who caused this, I'm the one who's responsible, kind of that survivor's guilt that a lot of folks in the military have. And so they're kind of a fan favorite. As you said, everybody, everybody loves them. And so my next Matt Drake book, which I'm finishing up now, is called The Forgotten oh, War, and it'll be out next year at this time. And it actually shows some of Matt and Frodo's origin story. And so you, it takes place um, during the fall of Afghanistan, but a good part of the book is also a flashback to where Matt and Frodo kind of first met and first were operational together. And so it's been, been really, really fun to write, and it's been really awesome to hear feedback like yours from readers who love that dynamic and love Frodo as a character. I think you should put pictures of the characters just for me. No, that would be great. Pictures of the places. Pictures of the places. I know. I, I, I complained to one of the authors that the book was just, that they wrote was so great. It was just missing pictures because they just missed something. <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> now, a character that I had mixed feelings about is Andrew. So mm, where yeah. did you bring him in? And then we talk about the Ukraine and the battles between yep. – I felt like I was living it, living the news again. <laughs> I was like, holy God. I appreciate you saying that. 
I appreciate you saying that. It's the um, so so the 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 character you just mentioned is is kind of the Russian antagonist, and so I knew, yeah. like I said, I knew I wanted to um, to set the book at least have it start in Vienna, but I wanted it to have a focus in Europe instead of it being a Middle East focus. And I love when I was a kid growing up is when um, Tom Clancy was kind of mm-hmm. coming into his prime and he wrote these like um, red storm rising was this epic military thriller that kind of showed a, a third world war um, writers like um, Harold Coyle had a book called team Yankee, which showed uh, a Soviet invasion through Germany and Larry bond had a book called red Phoenix, which kind of showed another mm-hmm. Korean war. And so I really wanted to, for this book, write it bigger and show a conflict on European soil and be able to show it from multiple points of view. So everything from certainly Matt's point of view to you get to see um, some young uh, Ukrainian girls to a Ukrainian militia member to um, the Russians who are actually, you know, setting the conditions for the fight in the Ukraine. And so that character is, is my Russian antagonist and he's a member of um their SVR, which is which is kind of their equivalent to the CIA, their Foreign Intelligence Service, and his job is to set the conditions for the Russian invasion in Ukraine. And so, if you if you look backwards to how the Russians invaded Georgia and then how they were successful in Ukraine the first time in the Donbas and um, mm. Crimea regions, they very much had what were called these little gray men, so Russian Spetsnaz folks who were setting the conditions for almost to make it appear that the Russians were invited into Ukraine. And the Russians have done this, this disinformation campaign very, very well in the past. In fact, one of the ways that Putin came to power is that most intelligence um, analysts believe now that there were a series of explosions in Russian apartment buildings um, that at the time were, were blamed on Chechen um, fighters and, and mm-hmm. use that as an excuse to invade Chechnya and solidify his power. And now most folks believe that those bombs were actually planted by the KGB. And so he deliberately did this in order to set the conditions for him to be able to consolidate his power and invade Ukraine. And so I wanted to show something very similar to that, mm-hmm. uh, or excuse me, to invade Chechnya at the time. I wanted to show something very similar to that to Ukraine. And so I got. I got some things right. I got some things wrong. And I think the biggest thing I got wrong uh, that the entire world got wrong is nobody, nobody foresaw the, the fierceness and bravery that the Ukrainian people would display to resist the mm-hmm. Russian invasion. And so that has been, um, I think the world has just been in awe of, of watching everyday moms and dads and grandfathers and grand, you know, pick up, there's a, there's all kinds of iconic footage, but one of the things that sits with me is is that there's a shot very early on in the invasion. You can tell it's from an apartment building or something that's at night, and there's a Russian armored column that's turning the corner of the street and entering, and you just see it looks like a constellation of shooting stars, and it's all these Molotov cocktails that are raining out of windows and hitting this tank, and just think about that for a moment, like the bravery of everyday mm-hmm. citizens to be throwing bombs at, at armored vehicles. It really is breathtaking. I have to admire the president of Ukraine. He's amazing. The, the, I, I worry about him incredible. every day. I worry about him every day because he looks terrible, and I worry that yeah. they shouldn't try to hurt him because if they kill him, they're yeah. lost. That's, that's it. 
and you know what? If they kill yeah. him, they need to do something about the other person. And the fact that he just he justifies what he's doing is scary. So now we come yeah. to a character that I really don't like. There was Peter Redmond. Why was he? Yeah. Why was he at the meeting with the? He was in the other one too, Russian operative. Yeah. And let's. And how do we? How does she? Poor poor Matt goes in an Uber, gets blindsided, <laughs> and how do we meet Ella? Yeah, She's so, stuff. so um yeah, so starting starting with Peter, like I said, in in, in Without Sanction, um, my debut, mm-hmm. I really wanted to show a couple of different things. I wanted to show um what was going on in, in this time this time it was Syria on the ground through Matt's viewpoint, but also what it was looking like from a, a political standpoint, kind of political maneuvering that's happening at the same time in the White House. And so Peter Redman is um is an advisor to the president, and so you meet mm-hmm. him first in Without Sanction, and he kind of plays a, a pivotal role in trying to influence the president's policy in Syria mm-hmm. as things are unfolding on the ground. And so Without Sanction ends with a little bit of a cliffhanger in regards to Peter, and and, and you see that pick back up in Hostile Intent. And so that thread gets kind of pulled a little bit more, and so while The Outside Man, my second book, was very much focused just on Matt and was only told from Matt's point of view. With Hostile Intent, like I said, I wanted to broaden that viewfinder a little bit and bring in some of the folks who had had roles and without sanction and wanted to kind of close those storylines. And so Peter Redman, like I said, don't want to talk too much about him, but he is back no. up to his old tricks, and you get to see that kind of resolved in Hostile Intent. See, I knew that. I could tell. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's it's scary. So there's two more people. Let's see. There's another yeah. bad guy, Praetor. Praetor. What was his role? And then we have Danilo. And why the farmers? I got so upset that there were so many people trying to hurt so many people. I just wanted to give them a timeout. <laughs> yeah. So so what I tried to show. Um, so it, what's very interesting about Ukraine in my book, and then actually. Ukraine and the situation that's unfolding right now is all of this comes back to nuclear mm-hmm. weapons. And so prior to um, 1994 or so, when, when, um, well, back when the Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union, you, on Ukrainian soil was, I think they had the third, most, third highest um, collection of nuclear weapons. And those nuclear mm-hmm. weapons at the time uh, belonged to the Soviet Union. And so in 1994, there was something that was called the, the Budapest, I forget if it's the Budapest Agreement or Budapest Memorandum, where basically Russia now, because the Soviet Union had disintegrated, the UK and the US and I think a couple other countries, but those were the primary important ones, kind of came to Ukraine and said, I tell you what, if you guys give up your nuclear weapons, um, give them back to the Russians or get them decommissioned, we, the UK, the US, and, and Russia – We'll sign this agreement with Ukraine that guarantees your territorial sovereignty. And so Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons, and fast forward until now, and unfortunately that piece of paper really isn't worth um, the ink that everyone signed it with because Ukraine gave up the one thing that would have given the Russians pause and said, hey, maybe we don't want to invade a country that has nuclear weapons at their behest, and they did so because they believed the United States would actually honor our word and guarantee their mm. territorial integrity, and that didn't happen. And so 
what I wanted to explore in my book is, is what would give the Russians pause? What if a Ukrainian militia had in their hands or, or were able to get their hands on a nuclear weapon? And so the characters you were talking about, there, there was some really interesting stuff done um, during the, I think it was 2014, the last time Russians invaded, where their military, mm-hmm. the Ukrainian military, really was caught flat-footed, and it was Ukrainian militias who, that were everyday citizen soldiers that kind of took up the banner and actually fought and stopped the Russians, their advance on a number of different cities. And so I thought, you know, what would be really interesting was to show the viewpoint between some of those warriors who are dragged out of retirement, if you will, and say, okay, we got to fight the Russians again, and the only way that we have a chance of stopping them is by getting our hands on a nuclear weapon, and so how, how could we do that? And so that's another subplot, and that's where those characters you just mentioned fall. Well, it gets even more difficult. It gets even more intricate <laughs> because, yeah, we have a scientist, and then he gets a, a phone call that there's that there's a, there's a, 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 someone that, that wants, they want him to meet, a Nolan's child. So... Mm-hmm. They had the poster board session, and how did you create that? But he gets blindsided because who was the person that was really calling him? That was really scary. It was yeah. a girl. But basically, yeah. it was somebody else. We won't say who. That yeah. was like, holy God, again? <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. So one of the things you're, you're trying to do as a writer is to keep ratcheting up tension chapter after chapter after chapter. And oh, yeah. There's a great um, quote that that people attribute to Raymond Chandler, and he he says something to the effect of his advice to writers is, um, when in doubt, bring in a man with a gun. And that's his his way of increasing tension and and keeping it going. And so what I wanted to do um, in the first two books were a lot more of Matt being kind of a a paramilitary officer, if you are, a lot more of kicking in doors and, and, and less of running spies is I really, in hostile intent, I really wanted to show more of the case officer side of that. So what does it look like when you run and recruit assets? How does that process work? And so there's something that's called a poster board session um, that happens in mm-hmm. Vienna while Matt's there. And so a poster board session is a, a academic setting where all kinds of scientists are basically um, – presenting their research, and a lot of times foreign scientists will come to these as well. And so if you're an intelligence officer like Matt, there can be some, some pretty ripe targets there where, hey, there are scientists who work, are working on incredible things, and I want a chance to talk to them to try and figure out what their research is or maybe trying to convince them that they should, especially if they're foreign scientists, that they should um, spy on our behalf. And so – and so, but the the issue is that the enemy is is or the adversary, if you will, is very smart about that too. And so, if you're a scientist from X com- country who's coming to a poster board to present, chances are your government is going to send what they call minders with you. So there there are people who are counterintelligence agents who are designed to keep people like Matt away from their scientists. And so, mm. I really wanted to show that because it's a fascinating back and forth. And so, I use a poster board session in Vienna um, sponsored by the Viennese um, Institute of Technology where you get to see Matt do more of that um, case officer stuff. And at the same time, like I said, there's 
there's uh, some additional tension that's building at the point, and, and there I get to do a little bit of reversal there. And so to me, that's, that's the fun of a really good book, is you're along for the ride, and you think the writer's taking you one way, and then all of a sudden they switch directions on you, and the story goes in a, in a manner, hopefully, um, that you didn't see coming. And so that, that definitely is part of Hostile Intent. I won't tell you what I saw coming, but I but I did have Good. heart palpitations at one point. But what can I say? At least we didn't kill a photo. I would be really upset. So we have Christina, Beverly, Charles, and Marco. And how did they? Who is Marco? And he's mean, Andrew. I, I can I can understand. He got really upset. So we have all of these other characters. So how did they come into play? Yeah. And then the most yeah, interesting like said, one is after was about the Constitution. That really got me. Yeah, so um, so like I said, I think the, um, a number of the ones that you're mentioning, there, there are a couple things that are happening at the same time. And so mm-hmm. Matt is, is trying to track down um, this information about a, uh, a Russian operation that's ongoing and how it pertains to Ukraine. And at the same time, everybody can see – the Russians are, are posturing at the edge of the Ukraine and trying and getting ready to invade. Mm. So you have Matt that's trying to work it from his angle. You have the Russians um, who are trying to set the conditions for it, the, the spies and the Spetsnaz and special operations folks who are doing that at the same time. And then you also have the Ukrainian militia who, who see the writing on the wall and are desperately trying to come up with a means, a nuclear weapon, of um, stopping the invasion. So you have all of these things that are building at the same time. And so there's a, there's a pretty good collision where all of those um, plot points kind of meet and, and you get to it's kind of hopefully it's a little bit like tossing a match into a pool of gasoline where all of these things converge and, and they converge in a way that is very hard for Matt to navigate, which is, which is, Hard to write, and you feel sorry for Matt at the time. But hopefully, as a reader, you're writing it, and you're having heart palp, or you're writing, reading it, and having heart palpitations and wondering what's going to happen. So it was a really fun, it was a really fun sequence to write. It was a really fun mm. climax to bring all of that together. And so hopefully, uh, hopefully, the readers like reading it as much as I liked writing it. Well, I loved it. But before I forget, Wednesday. Jeffrey yes. Wells, The Drowning Bay. And um, wow. Thursday, one of my crazy panels, Charles Salzberg, <laughs> Dick Belsky, and Vincent Dandre. We're going to talk about whatever they want to talk about. We're going to talk about where they write, because Vincent goes everywhere, and how they write. And do they scribble? Who knows? And whatever else comes up, because I never know. I just sit back and put my feet up. On the 10th, Stephen Manchester, Dad... And on the 12th, and i got to reveal the reason why I am so smart and get these books. It's his person's fault. Dr. George Cavuto was my professor at Lehman, and he's the reason wow. why I understand what I read because we're going to do, and I have to really be up on my stuff because he asks me questions too. We're going to talk about the <laughs> chapter in the Pedagogy and Psychology of Reading by Yui, written in 1800s. And we're going to talk about how to teach children how to understand what they read. That's the chapter. Wow. Yeah, and it, I've got to memorize people. 
and I have the old primers from from the year from the seventeen eighteen hundreds that are different. And why, as a reading specialist, reading of classroom teachers really don't know how to teach reading. They don't know how to address the serious issues of children. But we're going to fix that. And now, awesome. this was interesting, and I did look it up. This Article Five. How can the Constitution be mm-hmm. amended? And how is NATO drawn into this? But how can they change the Constitution to say something that they wanted to say? That was really interesting. Yeah, I th- thank you. So, so what you're um, referencing is that NATO, um, the agreement mm-hmm. that that binds NATO together, has what's called the Article Five provision, which which basically yeah. says that an attack on one is an attack on all, and so you don't have to. The the in, in in other words the calculus of of um, hey this is a real small country in NATO do we just let this go or do we actually th- that Article Five says that if the smallest weakest member of NATO gets attacked they can invoke Art- Article Five and mm-hmm. everyone has to respond and so what that has been kind of a, a bone of, of contention with Ukraine because they aren't part of NATO but have tried to become and have been on that path and so. One of the things I imagine in the book is, number one, what is there a scenario in which Ukraine could be um, extended article or extended NATO uh, membership, and is there a scenario where potentially um, they could they could invoke Article Five um, before a full-fledged uh, invasion? Because you know some of the argument too that I think folks have made effectively with, with the Ukraine in real life and how it unfolded is if we would have armed Ukraine to the point that we have now, if we would have been more proactive on sanctions beforehand, if we hadn't been reactive and are still in some ways reactive to what Russia has done, then maybe we could have prevented this or, or ended it sooner or, or any of other things. And so that's also part of what I am, mm-hmm. you know, look at in hostile intent is what would that look like and what possibly could be a reason for preemptively um, invoking Article 5? Well, there are two basic questions. I'm going to try to put all of these together because there's so many of them. Okay. <laughs> Matt needs some help, and he decide, he has a fit because he doesn't know. He asks for all sorts of people, but he gets the seals. Right? <laughs> He's not happy. Meanwhile, they, they, they turn out to be really good. And then we have Ella. Oh, she's a trip and a half. She's very self-centered, and she gets whatever yeah. she wants, which is really amazing. So, how did you? How did he? Cre- how did you create the scenes with the seals? And yeah. he realizes he needs help. So, how does he deal with it? Because he really doesn't want them. Yeah. So it's it's funny. I I was in the army for ten years. I was an Apache pilot, but I have um, in the last in the last. Mm-hmm. Um, 10 or so years or something, I've worked um, for a couple of companies that were staffed primarily with uh, former Army Rangers and so, um, and, and Army Special Operations folks. And so as all inter-services, inter- they kind of have a rivalry um, where the, the Rangers tell funny stories about the SEALs or make jokes at their mm. expense and vice versa. And so after 10 years of listening to my friend's SEAL jokes and all the the disparaging things I said, I was like, I have to figure out a way. And, and my main character, Matt Drake, is a, is a former Army Ranger, primarily because of those guys, because the men I, I'm fortunate enough to call friends have very um, heavily influenced me as a person and heavily influenced Matt mm-hmm. as a character. 
And so what I thought, I was like, it would be really fun to to take the 10 years worth of um, back and forth about the Army mm-hmm. deals from, a, from an Army perspective and put it in this book and then, number one, stick Matt and make him as a ranger um, be, be dependent on a team of SEALs and then have the, the team of SEALs um, have him have to kind of grudgingly give credit when credit's due when, when the SEALs perform in a, in a pretty spectacular way that saves his bacon. And so that was a ton of fun to write too, just because most of those jokes and most of the one-liners and most of the back and forth have been um, – comments that I've listened to or seen or, or whatever. And in fact, one of my good friends is a former SEAL in, uh, in my Tom Clancy book. His first name is Jad. I made him a green beret and, and, and mm-hmm. he absolutely hated. And so that's one of the, the fun things about being a writer is you get to pull in some of your life experiences and stuff and make that. And then the same thing with Ella, like I said, uh, many of my closest friends are Israelis. I got to, to know, um, quite a few folks from their special operations community and stuff. And so I really wanted to take um, the best of them and the funniest of them and kind of encapsulate them into this um, Assad character named Ella who plays a very prominent role in Hostile Intent. So both of those uh, things were very, very fun to do as a writer. You're lucky because if I try to get somebody to help me do something, it's different. You can't always get a, get a, somebody to, as an access or a resource, let me tell you. They use me as a resource, but what can I tell you? Okay, the, the funniest part, of course, is we won't tell anybody. But if you want to know what Matt's handle was in Ellis, I can't tell you that. That was hilarious. Actually, that was Thank so you. hilarious that I was surprised that he didn't knock her out or the person out when they, when they decided to call him that. So, what? Thank you. There's another character that was out of nowhere, but I liked him, was the Russian guy that wants to be a paratrooper. How come you brought mm-hmm. him into yep. it? Yeah, so one of the things, like I said, I wanted to do, what I think made those great epic military thrillers so mm-hmm. compelling, um, the Clancy books or Larry Bond or whatever, is that they showed you the battle from a number of different vantage points, including the enemy's vantage point. And so my friend Brad Taylor, and I forget um, which book it was um, that he wrote, he had a sequence that was from the perspective of this young Army Ranger who's doing his first combat mission, and they're jumping in and securing an airfield, which is one of the the doctrinal missions for the Ranger Regiment, is is to secure airfields so that um, the follow-on forces can, can land the big, heavy um, cargo planes there and unload them. And so I took that idea and said, you know what, I want to show the Russian invasion unfolding from a Russian perspective, but I think it would be really interesting to show it from a young 18-year-old kid who's a, who's a, um, a conscript in the Russian army who thinks that he is actually going on um, – just a military exercise, and it yeah. ends up becoming much, much more than that. And so I spent some time with a friend of mine who was a, a platoon leader in the Ranger Regiment to understand how they do airfield seizures and, and kind of walk me through because I'm not – I was never airborne. I'm not airborne qualified. And so I wrote this just – this young kid, because I think there's something poignant, too, in seeing uh, – realizing that a lot of this – and you see this in Ukraine right now, right, how many Russian mm-hmm. younger ones are surrendering or what have you, that wars are fought for the most part by young 18- to 20-something-year-old kids. Many of them have 
no idea what they're doing there, have, you know, were a year ago were in high school and, and chasing their high school sweetheart, and now, you know, they're potentially in the belly of a plane about to jump out into an enemy airfield. And so I wanted to be able to show it from, from the perspective of that young kid who is kind of along for the ride and experiencing it for the first time. I can feel him jumping out of the plane. I don't like anything that's more than one inch high ever. I, I can't. I, I I don't. I don't forget it. But I could feel him as he was falling, and I'm going like, "You could use an extra parachute, maybe." Poor thing. Now, my 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 brilliant final in between question: <laughs> How did yeah. you bring it all together and create the endings for the Russians? Ukraine yeah. and Matt, how did you bring it all together? It, and the surprise ending, we won't tell anybody. Can't do that. I appreciate that. It it was honestly, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And so, yeah. uh, so my my editor um, Tom Colgan, he also edits. He's edited everybody from Tom Clancy to Janet Ivanovich to Lee Child, and he edits. Uh, Mark Greeny and and we were talking about Mark once and Tom said you know what one of the things that makes Mark such a great writer is that at this point in his career he's he's so popular with the Gray Man series that he could just phone it in if you will he could just write a book and it'd be very Mm -hmm. episodic and here's the next adventure of the Gray Man but with every single book Mark pushes himself with his last book Relentless uh, he wrote it with two different timelines. And so he does something harder and something to push himself as a writer every single mm. book. And so when I was looking at this, I thought, man, wouldn't it be awesome if I had this crazy climactic scene where all of the timelines intersect and all of the the mm-hmm. points of view characters intercept? And I thought that was a great idea. And then I'm like, how in the world am I going to do that? And so I actually – when I get to the point where I'm in revisions, I have note cards all over the floor of my office, and each note <laughs> card is color-coded by a character, and, and it's a different scene. And it looked like, you know, this this rainbow of index cards that exploded over my, my floor. And so I spent a lot of time just moving cards around on the floor and rewriting and everything, and there were, you know, a couple of drafts I'd reveal something too soon or say, no, this couldn't happen yet because it – this person needs to see it. And then you start thinking about, like, what, what is the most cinematic way for this to unfold? Who should see this happen? What's the best way you can deliver that punch to the reader? And so it took a long time and many, many revisions to get it right. But I appreciate you saying that because that is, that is um, kind of the whole underpinning of the book is that final climactic scene or that big climactic scene that ties all the little different threads together. You know, you sound like when I wrote my fourth thesis for my master's, my fourth master's, and I'm like, like that's what I had to do, index cards or whatever, and they made you, mm-hmm. you couldn't even read it from, you had to memorize this, the thing, God. No, that's so, crazy. That's crazy. So what's next for Matt, and what's next for yep. you? When you bringing Ella back? Hint, hint. <laughs> so the next book I'm working on is called Forgotten War, and it actually takes place like um, – so when I was in the Army, I served as an uh, air cavalry troop commander in Afghanistan. And so like a lot of Afghan veterans, you know, I, I, I watched what happened um, last summer with, with a sense of horror and just watching mm. Afghanistan crumble and thinking, you know, I, I think – 
all of us at one point or another just asked the very simple question of was it worth it? Was was Afghanistan worth it? Was the sacrifices mm-hmm. we made, were the people that we lost there, was that worth it? And so as a writer, part of the ways you, you exercise those demons or, or answer those questions is through your books. And so Forgotten War um, actually takes place during the fall of Afghanistan at that point in time and also is, like I, I said, an alternate timeline that has – uh, the very first um, operation, Matt and Frodo went to or, or participated together in Afghanistan. And so you see both of those things um, together in Forgotten War. And um, and I think it's going to be really powerful. I'm, I'm finishing it up now. It's actually due uh, on the 15th of May, and it will come out next year this time. And then my next, next month, uh, so these are two big months for me. Next month, my second um, book in the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan Jr. series comes out, and it's called Zero Hour, and it takes place on the Korean Peninsula. And so my first assignment out of flight school as a brand-new lieutenant was to Korea. And so I've mm. always wanted to write a book that kind of imagined what a conventional um, – a conventional – uh, war on the Korean Peninsula might look like a limited one, and so you get to see that in this one. It, it, it's, it was so much fun to do, and one of the sequences I write, one of the point of view characters, is a young, uh, new lieutenant, an Apache lieutenant, who's there on his first assignment, and you get to see the war through his eyes. And I got to do kind of a nod to so many of the great people I flew with and put made them all as characters for it. And so it's going to be a ton of fun. And that's called Zero Hour, and that comes out on seven July or seven June. Excuse me. She she better send it to me fast because I have the interview in the seventh <laughs> of June. You're my first, you're my second one for June. I, I can't believe that I just I just Brian Freeman wrote a scary one. Forget the Jason Bourne mm-hmm. series. This is really scary. And um, <laughs> I tease the last he's the last interview for September, people. We're no two wow, October. That's crazy. I can't, I can't believe it. I, I'm like so excited because I love doing this. It's fun. And mm-hmm. somebody said to me the other day, and boy, did I blast them out. Oh, you don't do anything now that you retired from teaching. I was a reading, writing staff developer. <laughs> and the dean, I go, really? I, I have a syndicated radio show that's all over the world. I said, I interview authors because it's fun. I get the books for free. That's even better. I said, and I get to write another book if I ever figure out what I want to write. I said, but I guess I do nothing all day long. It's like, you know what? Whatever. But the, this this is great. So where can everybody get all of it? By the way, I read I reviewed yeah. Sierra Six for Mark. I don't think he realized it. Mm. I got what he was saying, and Sierra Six was good, mm. and I loved the Gray Man. It was really good. Yeah. And the and the yeah. two timelines, yeah. I was able to follow it. Yeah. I was impressed. Yeah, <laughs> so where can we get all good. of your books? And by the way, um, yeah. my my doctor has called me last week, and he told me, you don't have to come for an appointment. Just come and bring me books. I'm serious. <laughs> so yours just, awesome. just went in his pile, and he said, my awesome. wife wants all of your books from my bookshelves, and she's going to read some. I said, not a problem. I'm bringing some next week. <laughs> That's awesome. So my so hostile intent comes out tomorrow, and I'm super excited for that. You can figure out, or you can if you go to my website, it's donbentleybooks.com, mm-hmm. D-O-N-B-E-N-T-L-E-Y books.com, and you can see 
everything I'm working on, um, sign up for my newsletter and get updates and giveaways and everything. And I love to hear from readers. You can do that from through my website, or I'm also on Twitter and Facebook, and both of those are at Bentley Don B, so just at B-E-N-T-L-E-Y-D-O-N-B. So I would love to hear from you. Well, I saw the cover the other day that you put on. I see everything. That was really cool, but do, <laughs> Thank do you, you do Thank panels? You. I can't. Do you ever do panel yeah. shows? Because I, I do crazy things. This is going to be interesting, but I've done one with the last line of a novel. I did one, how did you write the first paragraph? I don't do normal things. I don't I don't ask people why yeah. they write. No, Nobody cares about that. Exactly. So I'm, no, yeah, I'd yeah, love I'm to just, be on a panel. I'd love to. Then I'll have to figure yeah. out one for September. I have three shows, three three broadcasts coming up every week in May, June, and I don't do July. It's my month off. And then August... I think I have four one week. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. Of September. <laughs> so I'm going to come up with something really wild because we've already done how you pick your character, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. I have to. I, I did one last month with how did you pick the scenery of your, the setting of your book because it's educational. Which mm, was that was good. That is good. Was That's good. Well, thank you. So thank you so yeah. much, everybody. It's The rain stopped a little but it's been a beautiful day. This has been fun, and I will put your in, your um, review on Amazon tomorrow, and I'll send it to you when they tell me awesome. that it's wonderful. Lately, they've been approving my stuff in three seconds. As nice. Fact, they sent nice. me they sent me a note the other day that they like my reviews. I have no idea why, but they do. Thank <laughs> and That's by the awesome. way, people, I well, don't get paid to do them. I just do them. <laughs> I had a problem with that a while ago. But thank you, Don, so much. This has brightened my day. Yeah. Everybody, do something nice for somebody. Do an act of kindness. Everybody have a great day, and bye.